are here today with Rob Huback, the uh, current CEO of Raw Justice podcast. And this is the farewell episode for Mr. Huback. Um, I'm excited to talk to him a little bit. But Mr. Huback, let's hear a little bit about Raw Justice because people are talking about it. You're on, what, episode five or six at We've this point? We've done six now, Jake. You've done six. Tell us a little bit about this whole project that you're working on. Well, thanks, Jake, for mentioning Raw Justice. Um, um, Alex and uh, John, I hope you're listening so that you can, uh, you know, understand that we're we're uh, we're plugging this. Um, so, Raw Justice is a it's a podcast that uh, attempts to highlight the uh, the down and dirtiness of law in the legal profession. Um, the, the two guys that I do it with, John Hammond and Alex Likas, are, um, are what we call street lawyers. And I say that affectionately in that they, uh, they, they kind of represent the underprivileged, the underrepresented, um, you know, folks who are in trouble with guns, assault, drugs, um, any of those types of, of uh of uh, of crimes and um you know they are we we just we talk about the law we talk about what it's like to be someone who uh you know who who gets paid in cash and uh you know <laughs> and and frankly doesn't know who's paying them you Although, talk you talk about restaurants too a lot and different places to go in baltimore <clears throat> yeah we have some arts and culture sections there um we you know we'll we'll talk about some of the best places to eat by uh by the courthouses we'll talk about uh you know, the other day, uh, John John had never had an Uncrustable, which is hard to believe, but he, he ate an Uncrustable for the first time in his life and was completely impressed by that, and I think he's obsessed with Uncrustables now. Um, <laughs> but we, we talk about that. We have a, um, our, our, um, our mascot is, a, um, is an Amish, Amish dog named uh, Muffin that Alex owns, and uh, <laughs> Muffin's had a couple health issues, but, but we were able to, with Alex's help, we, he was able to uh, nurse the dog back to health. And, um, so, you know, it's in all seriousness, those are, those are two of my good friends. Um, the conversations we have on the podcast are exactly how we interact when we're not on the podcast. I mean, conversations we have here, um, are, are pretty much extensions of the conversations we have all the time. And, uh, it's completely unscripted. Um, we will put together a couple topics of conversation, but I mean, I'll tell you, in episode five, I would say three quarters of it, we had no idea we were talking about it till we got in here. Hmm. Um, you know, the Springsteen concert, um, Alex's glasses, um, the new Baltimore Civic Center, um, you know, all that stuff. So do you prepare much for the episode, or how do you kind of go into a, a podcast with these guys? Because I know they're your friends, and I know that conversation goes wherever yeah. It naturally goes, but do you prepare notes? Do you think about topics that you want to cover? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, so. What'll happen is usually we'll once I can get those two to get a date, and and Chesare knows that um, getting those guys, you know, to commit to a date is really challenging. I mean, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, Alex Alex has a uh, a murder trial going on right now, and I don't know how long it's going to take if they plea it out. He could be done by today. If if it goes to the jury, it could be done by the end of the week. So. I think we're we're working around their schedule, and um, and usually what happens is I have a, a series of notes, a topics. There's usually a topic about law. There's a topic about what they've done in the in the prior week. Um, you know, John John wants to give props to a what he calls a lovable listener. Um, mm, I like and, that. And John, you know, and people don't maybe those who follow the podcast will know, but John is a is an, a, a Baltimore sports call-in icon. I mean, he is affectionately known around town as JFT, John from Timonium. Mm-hmm. So we tell a story where John was at a party. A friend of mine overheard him talking and said, is that John from Timonium? And I said, absolutely, that's John from Timonium. And so he's, he's legendary. <laughs> so, so the lovable listener piece was pretty much taken, I think, from his, his uh, background as a call-in guy. He's, he's been banned from a couple shows. Hmm. I mean, uh, he, he, he can get into it. He calls everybody. Yeah. He, um, well, he's a natural. I went to the first episode and got to observe you guys in, in the flesh. Uh, now that you're on episode six, mm-hmm. what do you think that you've learned about podcasting in this kind of world? I mean, I feel like in the first couple of episodes that we recorded, I was constantly watching myself and yep. trying to figure out ways to 
change yeah. things up and to make it better? What do you think you've developed so far? Well, um, one thing we've realized was that Alex, uh, Alex has a, a little bit of asthma, so he's got to get away from the microphone, and we were just talking about getting a filter for him. But I think Alex was so upset with his uh, asthma, uh, or at least his heavy breathing, that he went to a doctor that week to see if he really needed some more medicine or whether he was dying. Um, and the doctor said he, he needed probably some medicine. So he, he's, on, he's on some medication for his asthma. Um, I think what we realized is that um, you can't have one person talking and dominating the conversation because it's three of us, mm-hmm. right? You have, a, you have a dynamic where it's just you and a guest. Um, but when there's three of us, um, you know, John tends to, to talk a lot. Um, we kind of reined him in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Alex was the star of the last show. Um, and I'm just sitting there trying to keep it going. Um, because John could talk about Uncrustables for an hour. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I'm not sure that's what we want to do. Yeah, I think that's really, I mean, I've listened to podcasts a good bit just in the car and on my own. And I feel like that's what a good host does is poses good questions and then yeah. sits back yeah. and lets the guest and really lets the factor of curiosity play into the podcast. Yeah. Because that's what people want when they're listening is that their mind is going to the next Yeah. Uh, question and a good good host, you know, should ask that yeah. question. Yeah, I find myself um, really having to be quick in terms of moving it in a different direction. So, for example, when we talked the other day about Alex going to the Springsteen concert in at the Baltimore Arena, or whatever it's called now, um, that wasn't even part of the conversation. Um, but it came up, and we went with it, and then it turned into a lot of other things. And so I think as a host, you have to be able to like you said, think about your audience. What would the audience want to know? How would, you know, what would they want these guys to talk about next, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you appeal to a wide range, right? You can't, I mean, some of the input we got from the first couple of episodes was um, you, you're only, you're, this is only important for certain demographics, right? You have to figure out if you want people to really listen to it, how does it appeal to a lot of different types of people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it might, every show might not be geared toward them, but there has to be something that keeps them coming the next time, right? Mm-hmm. So how you balance humor, seriousness. Um, for us, it's it's legal stuff. Like we, I I want to know, um, you know, you know, as someone that's not a lawyer, I, I want to know how you select a jury. Like what are the, you know, what are the keys to understanding how to get a jury selected when your guy or your your client is facing a murder charge, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you have practical questions yeah. but you also diverge and talk about the closest restaurant that's pretty good you yeah. know i like the i like the blend of the serious yeah. intellectual yeah. questions and yeah kind of the fun ones yeah for sure and that and that's how those guys are i mean they um alex and john whenever they talk about their work always do it kind of through the through the lens of 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 making it humorous right and a little bit funny and um you know the the new marijuana laws that are about to hit the book in July, right? Where essentially you smell marijuana coming from a car. That that is not enough evidence to search a car anymore. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So so that kind of stuff is, uh, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I I can't. I'm sure you have. I'm sure Cesare has. Right? You're driving down the road and you smell marijuana. Yeah. And it's like, well. How in the world is this happening? And then you go pull up next to the car, and they're openly smoking marijuana. My question to the two lawyers is, well, aren't they aren't they opening themselves up to being arrested? And the answer to that right now is no. Hmm. There needs to be another reason to 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 search the car. So marijuana is not legal in Maryland, in the state of Maryland. It is going to be legal in Maryland, yeah, at a certain level. If you walk around New York City, you smell yeah, it like all the, time. all the time. Yeah, same with Seattle. Same with a lot of cities. So it's the, DC, right? The decriminalization is 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 absolutely uh, is coming. John John said something in the last episode where I think when he started practicing law, the amount of marijuana you can have legally now is the same amount that you would have been charged at the fel- at the federal felony level when you mm. first started. Really? Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. It's bizarre to me all the kind of red tape and conversation ar- around that and how it's different in different states. Right. It's pretty confusing. Yeah. So, so the podcast has been phenomenal. It's it's a great it's a great release and um, you know it's it, it's good. It's been fun. 
So um, it's May, what is today, May 9th, May 8th? Yeah, I think so. So what's kind of the state, where's your Where's your head at in May 8th of kind of your last year's upper school head and kind of what's the vibe at Gilman right now? Well, I think like every year, right, um, we've got a transition period where our seniors are leaving, they're getting ready to go and encounter, um, the freshmen are getting ready to go on Outward Bound. Um, you know, so I think there's we've got a multiple multiple things happening at once, and um, you know, for me, it's it's trying to trying to help Brian Ledyard, who's going to come in and, and take over as upper school head, and and um, you know, get him as a, as prepared as can be, but as, at the same time, kind of not step on his toes and kind of get him to the point where he can start the process of the transition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got um, our last couple sporting events. We've got playoff tennis coming on at four, and then the lacrosse team plays McDonough on, on Chan Lee today. So baseball playoff on Friday. Baseball playoff coming up. Who do they play in the playoffs? Uh, John Carroll, first round, double elimination. Okay. Yeah. And is that a that's a home game or away? That's a home game. Nice. Yeah. So the baseball was crazy. They they I, I mean they had a yesterday they played the last game. I think that they. Um, if certain if certain things happened, they actually would have been eliminated if they hadn't won. But now they won, so they actually got to third seed, which is crazy. So wow. it was very it was like that all year. Yeah. Well, that's good. So yeah, things are picking up. I've got my last senior class. Are you teaching I seniors? Mine. I have mine today. Really? Yep. What do you do for the last senior class? Because I'm thinking a lot about that right now. I gave them a 45 minute writing assessment on the course. Yeah. So it's an urban studies class, and we've talked a lot about urban centers and cities and um, what affects them and so I my final assignment was to ha- have them look at Baltimore and 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 write that if, if 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 they were kind of a physician or a doctor and they had to diagnose Baltimore from the lens of the you know the the systems of circulatory system right so comparing them to an to a, a mammalian organism hmm. right what kind of state what would the health report be interesting right so I gave them seven, seven of the systems, you know, skeletal, circulatory, those. And I said, now I want you to write about four of them. And I want you to, from that perspective, tell me, right, where can you connect kind of a mammalian organism to a city and then diagnose its health? Wow. That's an interesting uh, yeah. topic. Yeah. That's a prompt that I think, well, were you having them do it on the computer? Or? Yeah. That's a prompt that I think ChatGPT would have a hard time <laughs> writing on because it's so uh, specific. Yeah, I think so. I look. Here's my thing about ChatGPT. Um, I think um, you know clearly it's made it easier for kids to write reports. It's made kids. It's made it easier to write emails. Anything you want. But I think it it also is going to force teachers to be um, more diligent about the material and the way they ask questions, right? You mean the prompts that they give out? Yeah, I think the prompts. Um, you know, I, look, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, opportunity for teachers to be lazy in how they give assignments. Mm-hmm. And I think those teachers that um, are, gonna, are gonna find themselves dealing with a lot of G- chat GPT problems are gonna be the ones that don't necessarily think long and hard. And, and I think, um, more intellectually about the prompts they offer. Yeah, I think that's true. I've been, um, just recently, I've been trying to have my students give presentations mm-hmm. whenever they have a writing assignment due because then you have to stand up, which is a skill in itself, to stand right. up in front of your classmates and eloquently deliver right. the information in a way that's not going to bore us, Right. which is hard. And I've also been saying, and I am definitely somebody who does this a lot. If you listen to the podcast, I say like and um and uh right. sometimes, but I've been trying to get them to not do that in their presentations and in their video recordings because I think that's a skill too. Yeah, it is. I do the same thing with my uh, with presentations. I grade them on on how clearly they they articulate their point, um, whether they whether they say um, and I, I have a bad habit of doing that too. But it's good for them to to figure it out early yeah now what do you think is the trick to teaching seniors in the second semester because I really find myself uh, figuring out 
you know, as we said, different yeah. creative strategies to keep them engaged because a lot of them are already in college. They're halfway out the door. They're thinking about other things. Yep. And I find it one of the more difficult courses that I teach is my second semester senior great short fiction class. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think that for me in, in the subject area of urban studies, um, I think less is more. And I, I mean less in terms of the number of assignments you give, um, the number of I think you have to look at it from from the perspective of look I've got you from January until early May right the the level of intensity the level of interest is going to wane from week to week as we go through the weeks um, I want you to I want you to to challenge yourself and think about the world around you more than more than you know uh, grades or assessments right so you know I probably had five, six assessments all semester. Mm-hmm. Um, we read we read probably three quarters of the book We Own the City by Justin Fenton, which is about real people and a real event in the city in which they live in. So they can look up all the things on the map. You know, they can look at the locations where guys were were targeted they can they can uh you know they understand you know they hear baltimore police department and they know who the main characters are they can see it in the news i mean we can pull up uh, newspaper articles you know it's i i think that i i what i what i like this last semester to be is it is a chance to basically take the pressure off of grade mm-hmm. right focus right and on it's almost like an audit of a class. Right? Yeah, yeah. And and I think that a lot of reactions, right? So how would you react to X? How would you react to Y? So it's a lot of it's a lot of self reflection. It's a lot of here's here's what I think as opposed to right or wrong answer. Yeah, I think that's good. Do you do a lot of discussion in that class? Are you talking to each other on a daily basis? Or are you having them work independently for the most part? It's a lot of data analysis. So we'll take, um, <clears throat> you know, it's like one of the city, one of the assignments we did was I gave every kid a, a major urban area in America and gave them criteria for um, basically diagnosing that city based on, you know, um, poverty, right, uh, police, uh, education, homelessness, right, all those all those things that that you can and and what we did is we used Baltimore kind of as the model. So I didn't give them Baltimore. We did that together, mm-hmm. and then I would send them off and do something similar to cities across America. And then we'd come back after they did their presentations, and then we would look kind of at some kind of macro questions, like like why is it that Cleveland, for example, is is in worse shape than let's say Las Vegas, or how would you distinguish those two cities? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, one's a one's a decaying urban, right, industrial city, and the other is a a hub of entertainment and hospitality. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And we could then like overlap filters on there. So, for example, we would look at the the idea of where in Las Vegas the most impoverished people live, or the most, uh, or or the minority groups. Right. And you can look at that pattern. If you, if you have the right data, you can say, okay, well, they live scattered throughout the city um, equally, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in Cleveland or some older cities like Baltimore, you look at kind of what they call the black butterfly. And that's based on the history of Baltimore redlining and racial discrimination. So Las Vegas didn't necessarily go through that historical, right, um, those historical times, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and there could very well be redlining in, in Las Vegas, but it's certainly not, it, it certainly wasn't um, institutional like it was in Baltimore back in the 1800s and 1900s, right? Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. can see, you know, and then you take Baltimore and you take Washington and you take, you know, other cities like Cleveland or, or Milwaukee, right, that had those same redlining laws. And it's interesting when you look at patterns of where the poverty is, right? Right. Hmm. Um, what are some of the cities that the students chose to do a deep dive on this semester? Yeah. So that. So we looked at. We looked at think places like. So what I did is I tried to give them choices in different 
parts of the country. So we looked at, for example, Sunbelt states, um, cities like Orlando, cities like Tampa versus cities like Detroit, you know, the urban kind of industrial, mm-hmm. you know, industrial Midwest versus um, Phoenix, Las Vegas, Austin. Austin's on the up and up, Houston, right? Houston, yeah. So I'm curious about what makes a city, um, I guess, like become popular automatically mm. other than the influx of jobs. Like I know Austin, Texas is a big hub for tech jobs. Yep. And I think the same is probably true for Charlotte because I know Charlotte is booming yep. right now. Banking. People are big banker. banking. Yeah. Um, what are some of those cities right now that are on the rise and like what is contributing to to that? Uh, I mean, you look at cities like Phoenix, which is huge when you look at the metropolitan area, right? You get into Tempe with Arizona State, which is, um, you know, to the, well, I guess it's to the west a little, yeah, it's just to the east of, of downtown. And then you've got Scottsdale and, and then further out, you've got hubs like um, Surprise and Mm-hmm. Uh, Glendale, right? And and so what you see happening in a place like Phoenix, unlike other cities, is you've got a place like Scottsdale in downtown Phoenix where you have some, you have money and you've got primarily, you know, white, rich white. And then what's happened is a lot of the Latino populations have moved outside of Phoenix where it's cheaper, mm-hmm. like Glendale or Surprise or places like that. Um, I think... Um, you know, Las Vegas is booming, you know. Really? Yeah. That's one place I've never been and have no desire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you should go just to see it and to, to compare it to other places that you've that you've been. Like it is it is so far it is so different from a place like Baltimore or Boston or you know, a place like that. First of all, there's no like you know, one of the things that we that we talk about a lot is um, you know, there there are indicators that talk about um, average commute time f- to work, right? And um, in places like Las Vegas, there is no public transport. They have public transportation, but it's all above ground. It's all buses, right? Mm-hmm. There's no subway. There's no underground, right? Which is, which is an interesting concept, right? Because, you know, um, it clogs streets, right? Um, it just adds to the traffic woes. I mean, I, I can tell you this. I mean, having been in Phoenix just over Mar- in March, I would argue that commuting in Phoenix is worse than going to California or LA. Where really, it's sitting traffic. Tourists. Oh my God, it's horrible. Really? Yeah, terrible. Yeah, I mean, LA, LA has a like a um, <clears throat> um, like a light rail system, you know, so you can take public transportation. Right? Phoenix is it's all cars. Hmm. So you're not really a fan of going out there, other than to see your son. I, I like the I like the weather and I like the uh, the outdoorsiness of it, yeah. um, and I would certainly live there. But um, I would certainly limit myself to how far I traveled. I would live someplace where everything I need was in a short distance. Yeah, I think that's one factor of you know something that I consider that I feel like a lot of people don't really consider is uh, convenience of yeah. things in life. That's like one thing that I really want in life is yep. being able you know like right now have a four minute commute to my classroom in the morning is yep. a game changer and no stress i'm not getting in my car and right. sitting in any traffic or sitting at any lights it's huge i agree i absolutely agree with you and i i think as we look at cities through the class you know i i i would ask them you know where would you live? Would you live in a city where you had to get in a car all the time or could you, you know, or a city where you walk and can take a public transportation rather, rather easily? Um, you know, the newer, the newer, the newer cities, right. Um, they've committed themselves to automobile travel exclusively. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what we, we talk a lot about impact of COVID, you know, and, and one of the things that has happened in cities is that, Restaurants have now moved out into the street a little bit, right? We have outdoor dining where you never have before, mm-hmm. right? But but we often we also think about we we look at this data that shows how many how many parking spots are in a city, right? And what happens if you tore down parking garages and told people they couldn't drive into the city, right? And would just have to take transportation and Uber or, or bike Lyft. or walk, right? Yeah. Or you you take for example 
you know, in Baltimore, you make streets exclusively one way, right? Like, for example, maybe you, you or, well, let me go back. Maybe you, you make like St. Paul Street two ways and you make Charles Street simply a pedestrian street, mm-hmm. right? Or a bike street. And you keep cars out of the city, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think those are, there are cities in America that have, that have used COVID as a way to kind of change how they do things. I think Pittsburgh, for example, has had some initiatives where they're using much more biking and, and, and hiking or walking as opposed to the emphasis on cars. Hmm. Right. That's interesting. It, it makes me think about um, a lot of this office space mm-hmm. that people aren't really going to the office right. as much and the office space is just sitting there. I right. wonder what they can do about something, especially like New York City. There are so many of these yeah. massive skyscrapers and people are just in their apartments. Like I have friends in New York who are just sitting at their yeah. desk inside working. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I mean, I think it, 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 it takes, um, it takes creativity. It takes a paradigm shift in terms of what cities are about. Right. I mean, th- there are some cities that have gotten rid of parking garages and they haven't necessarily gotten rid of the structure, but they've, they've made that structure multi-purpose. So maybe they keep some parking spots but they've also built office buildings and some apartments in these huge parking spaces, right? Hmm. So, I mean, I think if you're gonna cut down congestion in a place like Baltimore or other cities, and, it, and it's, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot in the Northeast, um, you know, you just have to get rid of parking spots. I mean, if you can't park, you can't drive in there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you have to find alternative ways to get in. Right. And people aren't gonna be so ready to move outside of the city knowing that they can drive into work they're going to find right it was it's kind of what happened in baltimore where you know once the jones falls expressway was built people that lived in the city who didn't want to live there anymore or felt they were being encroached upon and there were some racial components to that too moved up into the suburbs mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so my dad worked right downtown on pratt street and he moved he and my mom bought a house in harford county 40 minutes away, hmm. but he could drive in from 95 and then drive right into JFX mm-hmm. without stopping at a thousand lights. So if you were to, I mean, I assume that Baltimore, you've lived here mm-hmm. most of your life. Have you lived in other cities? Nope. Always Baltimore. Always wow. Baltimore. If you could live in another city, which one would you want to experiment and, and try out? I mean, I, I, I mean, I would go to, I'd go to Phoenix. Really? Yeah. Even though there's, there's traffic. Well, not in Phoenix downtown. I would I would be outside of Phoenix a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let me take that back. I think if I could, I would I would actually, I would live in L.A. if I could too. Really? Yeah, I would. That's another place that I don't really have yeah. a crazy amount of desire to go to. There's yeah. too many people. I feel like, you know, New York City. I go to New York City. I'm like. A weekend is good for me. There's too much people, too many people, too much going yeah. on. Smells. You know, it's I, I couldn't live in New York. I'd be so claustrophobic in New York. <laughs> Isn't L.A. similar or is it more spread out? No, it's much more spread out. Yeah. yeah. And there are different pockets. Like you can live, you know, you can live near the beach. You can live up in the hills. Right. I mean, for me, I, 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 I'm at a point where I want to be able to, to wake up and get on a bike and ride on a trail. Yeah. Or, or drive a few minutes and get on a trail. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And do those things or go to a golf course and play golf. Right. I mean. Just um, the quality of life, the exercise, the outdoors. I mean, I want to be able to go outdoors twelve months a year. Mm-hmm. That's that's where I'm. So you're, that's what I want you're to be considering able to do. the weather uh, before for sure. everything else, for sure. Yeah, and affordability. Yeah, right. That makes sense. You know, um, I want the culture. Like I, I don't think I could live in. You know, I couldn't live in a place where there isn't culture either. Like I, I, I want to be near universities where there are things to go see. I mean, I like watching sports. I like to go watch music. Um, I want to be able to get out my, go out my front door and, and bike and hike and walk. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So or, which, um, well, first of all, I think that this is a really interesting for a second semester senior class. It's yeah. a really interesting question for them to consider. Yeah. Something that I asked my students a couple of weeks ago is, what are some of the most important decisions you'll ever make in, in life? 
And I think, you know, there are a few, but I think where you live and where you decide to live is a very important decision, not only for the weather, but for proximity to friends and family and where you're really going to grow and meet people and form connections. So, yeah, I think for seniors who are going off to college and eventually in four years going to figure out where they want to live, I think this is important. Yeah, we also, I also have them do kind of the same. So we do this exercise with Baltimore where we look at, you know, the number of people in poverty, the number of homeless. um, But I also have them do it for the city or town that they're going to go to college in. Yeah. So they have an idea of, you know, like if you're going to the University of Richmond, what's Richmond like? Or if you're going to Columbia. Or if you're going to James Madison and you're in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Yeah. Like what's the racial makeup? What's the the poverty level? Um, You know, how many people have advanced degrees? I mean, all that stuff, you know, they're going to be there for four years. Right. I mean, presumably, maybe longer. And then maybe they don't leave. Yeah. I mean, it is a huge factor because, you know, a lot of the jobs you'll be looking at right Right. after college are going to probably be in that area. So might as well know what it's about and what the trajectory of the city is. Yeah, for for sure. And I think, you know, the, the, the college students in certain towns, there's always, you know, there always seems to be this conflict with the people that live there. Right, because they're they're short timers. So, you know, maybe you can understand a little bit about their perspective if you know what the town's like. Yeah, I think um, I guess I didn't know too much about Baltimore before moving down here. I mean, I knew about Hopkins because yeah. my dad went here, and I came down yeah. to Baltimore and lacrosse, and was watching lacrosse games growing up. So I knew about that, but. Um, the only thing about Baltimore that I wish there was a little bit more of is kind of an outdoorsy mm-hmm. culture that you would get in, you know, like Denver or yep. somewhere out west. That's the one thing that's missing for me, I think, because I don't really care about, you know, a lot of my friends are in New York City. I I can go up and see them yeah. when, when I need to. But the outdoorsy part, like you said, like getting on a trail and going for a hike, that's what's missing here for me. So true. So true, and it's um, you, know, you got to drive up to, you know, Baltimore County or Patapsco out in Howard County to get a really good outdoor experience. Um, you know, we you can take urban walks. I mean, my wife and I will sometimes mm-hmm. park in Harbor East and walk all the way around to uh, Federal Hill. You know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. walk along the water, walk along the and you know we that that's phenomenal too, mm-hmm. right? Um, Baltimore is an easy town. You can walk in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. It's not, you know, it, you've got to pretty much travel to get somewhere. It's not like Denver or, or other places. Probably like Salt Lake City too, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's a real vibe that's outdoor. It's part of people's lives. I know and here it's, it's not part of people's lives. People do it, but it's not Im- embedded in what you do as a, yeah, Baltimorean. Yeah, like after work, your friends aren't going, you know, for a hike for fun. No. So. No. How about San Francisco? Did you guys talk much about San Francisco? Because I've heard that the homelessness issue out there is is getting incredibly bad and worsening. Um, do you know much about? We talked more about um, about Oakland. Oakland, actually. yeah, and that was one of the one of the cities that um, that the students kind of um, you know dissected, and um, you know Oakland's <laughs> Oakland's in a tough spot too, right? They're probably going to lose their last remaining athletic team, which is the A's, who are going to go to Las Vegas. Um, you know, I think they're, they're, they're a victim of not being San Francisco, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, um, the racial, the racial, the demographics is, is different in San Francisco. Uh, African-American population is, is large in, in Oakland. Um, and, and I think that the, the issues that, that affect urban cities, especially urban cities where you have a large um, minority population, are, are under incredible amount of stressors. Mm-hmm. Jobs, poverty, crime, right? Police, yeah. police force, all those things. Yeah, you think about those issues and you think about how difficult it'd be, you know, in a leadership position to yep. fix that. Yeah. Um, cause I, I d- wouldn't know where to start. Well, I think it's also jobs. I mean, obviously, you know, San Francisco has you know, tech jobs and, and home offices and, 
I mean, you can live in Oakland and work in San Francisco, but the commute time is is also pretty significant, mm-hmm. right? You don't have much of a life other than commuting into San Francisco, right? But um, yeah, I don't the the problems of San Francisco are are pretty significant. It's it's a homeless issue. It's also mental health. I mean, mental health is is the is the biggest factor in homelessness, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, you, you if you're going to fix homelessness, you got to address the mental health issue, right? For sure, and um, you know, people not getting it early enough, people not being taken care of who have mental illness, um, you know, that's that's the cause, really, of, of what this homeless issue is in America, I, th- I think. Yeah. Right? I mean, you can have bad luck, but, you know, if you are mentally, if you do not have the medicine, if you don't have the treatment, um, I mean, you can't hold down a job, you can't hold on to your family, right? You can't stay in, you just, you're, you're, the the deck is stacked against you big time. Yeah, mental health and addiction. I mean, and also it's it's also cost. I mean, you think about this for a second. Um, you know, the problem with San Francisco is it's so expensive to live in San Francisco. Right. I mean, you've got to be in tech or right. banking. So you're or, homeless, right? If you're going to live in, I mean, you've got to live outside of the city to. I mean, you got to get way out of the city to afford it, right? right. So I think in turn. In, Unless they find a solution to affordable housing and mental health treatment, you're going to have cities like San Francisco where housing is through the roof. Um, you're going to have a large mental health problem. And same thing's happening in New York, too. Yeah, yeah. New York is pretty bad. Right? Yeah. But you can't live in New York. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would, like to, um, I would like to know, I would like to talk to somebody about um, different ways other countries handle mental health and where America kind of falls short because that really is, you know, I think a worsening problem in some of these urban places that we're talking about. I don't know this for sure. I would, I would guess that, that in many countries where they have um, um, a system of medicine that is more um, probably equitable, mm-hmm. you know, because if you're going to treat mental health, you have to have insurance. Right. Right. You have to have the funds to be able to to treat mental illness. Yeah. So. And in this country, unless you are employed, right, um, health care comes primarily through employers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's jobs and so it's, it's insurance. Jobs. And it's good jobs. It's jobs that aren't hourly jobs where you're not getting, you know, I mean, you need a job that has benefits. Right. It's not good enough to have a job that pays you $15 an hour without the benefits. Right. And I think kind of back to our chat GPT artificial intelligence conversation, I think, unfortunately, that advent of AI is just going to disrupt what we're talking about even more because, you know, these things can take a lot of jobs. Well, yeah. And and the, you know, I hate to get back on the urban studies thing, but you know, one of the cities that we focused on together at the end of the course was Dayton, Ohio. And, you know, Dayton, Ohio is, you know, it's got two universities in it, but it's in bad shape. I mean, there's no industry there anymore, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, GM took off, National Catch Register took off. Um, you know, people people are not going to get jobs that pay them $35 an hour anymore, mm-hmm. you know? So if you, if you worked at a GM plant in Dayton, Ohio, and you got paid $35 an hour, and that job took off to Mexico or somewhere cheaper, um, you can have another company come in and fill some of the void of unemployment, but you're not getting a job again at $35 an hour. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so, and the cost of living continues to increase, and housing continues to increase, so, um, you know, it, it's it, you get through this kind of cycle that's really uh, devastating for folks. Mm. Well, hopefully, some of the students in your urban studies class can continue to think about these, I hope so. these issues. Yeah, I hope they become urban planners and urban guys. How many students do you have in that class? Eighteen. Wow, it's a big class. Yep. Nice. Yep. Um, so you recently did a presentation on the stranger and I unfortunately i couldn't make it i had a jv lacrosse game that day lucky you um 
Tell me a little <laughs> bit about the stranger. Why, you know, why did you want to do another presentation? I know you did one on Dostoevsky a, a couple months ago, and now we're talking about Camus. Uh, why him? Uh, I think <laughs> I thought a lot about that, Jake, and um, I think it might just be um, kind of the time of life that I'm in, <laughs> where I'm kind of going through this existential crisis about who I am and what I want to do with the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. You know so, so a book like The Stranger is appealing only in that I, I'm probably in a much better frame of mind to be sympathetic to the main character a little bit. Um, you know, and I, I think, um, you know, as a, you know, Camus is an absurdist and he creates this book where the main character essentially um, lives for, for pleasure. Um, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't cause many problems. He, he doesn't really care about love. He doesn't care about death. He cares about his own pleasure. And, um, you know, that's how he defines himself. And I think in, in this world, uh, and I'm, I'm getting pretty philosophical and existential here, but I think in this world, right, we, you have to, you almost have to choose to be, you, you have to choose a path to go down, right? Um, and certainly in Camus' world, it was, you know, you chose the path of, let's say, kind of a rational, scientific, right, um, thinker, or you chose the path maybe of, of faith, right? So, so however, how, whatever became the guide for how you lived your life, you really had two choices, right? Mm -hmm. You followed the path of, of faith and religion, or you followed the path of the rationalist and kind of... Um, you know, kind of the Greek rational liberal thinking. And, and um, you know, so Camus was writing, Camus was writing in the 1940s. Um, he's reacting to the, to the cataclysms of the first half century of the 20th century and wondering, you know, who, you know, this is all based on this uh, focus on this rational world, the rational world, this world in which we are supposed to embrace because it, it's, guided by man, it's guided by his values, um, has led us to this devastation, right? And this is post-World War I. Post-World War One, and really kind of right at the end of, po of World War II. So okay. you've gone through World War One, World War II, the Holocaust, the rise of totalitarianism, right? You've mm -hmm. got millions of people that have died, they're displaced, there's no hope. And so um, Camus' book is about this character who, um, really decides that he's just not going to follow any of those paths, right? He is going to be his own self. And, you know, the, the book itself has been translated also as what's called the outsider. So if you look at it from that perspective, the outsider makes more sense, frankly, because Merceau is kind of outside the constructs that have been created for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, in the book, he he shoots, he shoots an Arab at, at at the beach while he's on vacation, and he doesn't really know why. He doesn't really care to know why. I mean, its explanation is that he was hot and the sun was in his eyes, and that's why he shot him. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not hate. It's not vindictiveness. It's not jealousy. Right. It's not all those values or all those things that usually drive us to act. Hmm. So he's kind of an underground man. Yeah. He's right. got the same philosophy yeah. as the underground man. Yeah, which was attractive to me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know? So that, that doesn't happen until the end of the book, right? The first three quarters of the book is just kind of following him around. and Yeah, it happens in the middle. Oh, well, kind in of in the middle. And then the second part of the book is, is, is Merceau on trial. Um, basically trying to – I mean, he's given every opportunity by – by the authorities, by the police. Essentially, he, because, <clears throat> excuse me, because of who he is, he's a French Algerian. He shoots an Arab. So there is this element of hierarchy of race, right? And all he really has to say is, I'm sorry. Or he could say, I felt like I was threatened mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and nothing would really happen to him. Mm -hmm. right? He probably would get off. Right. But he doesn't because he didn't feel that way. I mean, he's not, he's true, right? He's, he's, a, he's a true believer. Right. Right. And so, um, is it his, is it his first person narration is the story him telling? Yes, it, it is. Okay. Yes, he is. But, 
one of the things I think you have to read before you get into The Stranger is, is um, Camus wrote something called The Myth of Sisyphus, in which he talks about you know, Sisyphus rolling the rock up the, up the cliff, right? And it always, he gets to the top, and it comes back down. Mm-hmm. And he just keeps doing it. And Does he, yeah, he gets the moment <clears throat> of relief or satisfaction at the top for like a brief moment yeah. and then has to continue working. Yeah, but, but he doesn't complain about it. He keeps doing it, right? And so pushing that thing up the cliff is really the, his purpose for living, right? Mm-hmm. So for Merceau, his, his purpose for living is, is living within an absurd world. So the, the whole premise is that we're living in an absurd world. Right. We want to know the meaning of, of man. We want to know the meaning of our life. Um, and in an absurd world, you never really get that answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you have two choices. Actually, you have three choices, according to Camus. You can, you can physically end your life, right? Or you can commit physical suicide, which you just give up. <coughs> you, can, you can commit philosophical suicide, which means that you kind of give up and follow one of the two constructs. Or you simply do the best you can. And and doing is that the absurdist claim? Yeah. Just mm-hmm. doing the best you can, just yeah. doing whatever pleases you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. So why is uh Dostoevsky why is he not absurdist? I, I, is it just a different movement that happened later? I mean, would he have been absurdist if he had existed in the you know, nineteen four nineteen fourteen or whenever the stranger was written? Or is it slightly different philosophy? I think it's a little different. I think um, Camus wouldn't claim to be an existentialist. Um, I think Dostoevsky's character is more... Um, uh, Dostoevsky's character, I think, is cares a lot about what people think of him. Mm-hmm. Right? And if you read it, he's <coughs> he's very vindictive. He's very spiteful. And I don't, Merceau's not spiteful. Merceau doesn't... He doesn't even think of that value. Hmm. But isn't um, <coughs> sorry? Isn't uh, Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment? I mean, doesn't he murder his neighbor, the landlord, just because? You yeah. Know? Or does he does it for a reason? Though he wants the yeah. money. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting when you um, one of one of our colleagues read The Stranger a long time ago in a French literature class, a French language class, and said he hated it. And I said, well, I think it's really hard to understand The Stranger unless you have the context in which, A, he's writing it, B, the philosophy of existentialism. I think you need to know a little bit about, you know, the whole movement of existentialism from Nietzsche, you know, up to those at the turn of the century. I think it's important that you know a little bit about, you know, people like... um, Picasso, right? Even from the perspective that Picasso is is also painting in this world that he doesn't quite understand, this world that's chaotic, mm-hmm. right? And you know, people don't necessarily understand what it is that Picasso was drawing. They look at his art and they're like, "God, I don't understand this. I don't like it." Right? But to Picasso, it makes perfect sense, right? right? Because he's looking at it from a p- perspective that's not like the perspective I would look at it. Right? right. You're looking at it you know, a hundred years later plus. Yeah. And, and so, you know, when Picasso, he did a famous, he did a number of famous paintings in which his wife, who he was leaving or he, he was, he had left her. I think she was a Russian ballerina and he had found another muse that, that he was in love with and lived with. But he, he would paint his wife as this, almost like this praying mantis, right? And it doesn't look like a praying man. You can see elements of the praying mantis, but, but you know, he's that, that, that his, his purpose in that, right, is, is trying to display and trying to make a point about this woman that he's not in love with anymore, who is just, you know, whatever the relationship had become. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, so if he painted the praying mantis as a real thing, we'd be like, oh, yeah, I get that. It's easy. Right. right. But he, he's looking at it from a whole different, right, this chaotic world where nothing really makes sense. Right? Mm-hmm. The rational world has been kind of, you know, because, diminished. Because of all these events that right. have happened, World right. War Right, because I, how are you going to trust the rational approach to 
to anything, right? When when reason and rational, you know, the push to rationalism and the movement away from from faith and and the church has led us to all these horrendous things. Right. 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 I think T. S. Eliot. I wonder if you do talk mm-hmm. about T. S. Eliot. I we think don't of the, much. the the Hollow Man is a poem that he wrote, and it kind of has the same feeling of trying to figure out uh, some sort of belief system right. in a world that could do so much damage and right. create so much suffering as right. World War One. Well, I think that's what Camus talks about Marceau. It's like if there is no there. The world is absurd. The belief system that we're supposed to follow has led us down this path. So the only person I'm going to trust to, to lead me down this path is me. Right, right, right. And, yeah. of, and of course, the danger of that is, is that we choose to live in a society that hasn't, you know, th- that's, not what, that's not what guides society, right? I mean, we don't have a bunch of Merceaux living in society. And if we do, they're quickly weeded out, right? right. Or, they, or they destroy themselves. Mm-hmm. Which is what happens at the end, where he is essentially willing to be executed, right? Despite all the opportunities to kind of—I uh, don't know what the right word is—you um, know, just follow, you know, be a follower. Yeah. Instead of being unique in his to himself, he's a total outcast. Oh yeah, and there's the great scene at the end where he yells at the at the uh, at the minister for trying to tell him, you know, I have forgiven you. You need to forgive yourself. And he's like, forgive myself for what? Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, he doesn't look at it from the, from the traditional values, right, of right and wrong. He just does it. He just did And it. there is no, there, you know, he can't comprehend, you know. The other side is looking at what's just, and he doesn't even know what just justice is. Because justice implies you've done something in violation of what, right? Of what society, of what, the rule, has, what the society says is 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 how we should act. Yeah. Hmm. He, so he's outside of all these rules, restrictions, and made-up values. Right. He's right. acting on his own like an animal almost. Right. So yeah. the question a lot of the kids ask is, "Well, did something happen to him? Like, how did he get that way?" Right. Like the book opens up where he says, "My mother has died today. I got to get on a bus." And go to her funeral, and he's completely inconvenienced. You can tell that, you know, this is like the biggest pain for him to have to go in the heat, ride a bus, and take care of his mother. Right, and they actually use that against him in the trial. They basically say, "Well, look, he didn't really care about his mother. He didn't show any compassion. Right, he didn't cry. He didn't cry at his mother's funeral." Yeah, yeah, I remember that part. And it's like, well, <laughs> you cry because you feel sorrow. You feel pain. He doesn't, he doesn't feel that, right? He can't do that. He's not going to do that, right? That's philosophical suicide. That's caving to a construct that tells us how we should act. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, how about other Camus books that we can read other than Stranger? I know there was one, The Plague, yeah, that I came think, out. Yeah, I think The Plague is, is a good one. Um, I mean, I have to say I'm not a big, I mean, I'm not a Camus devotee. Um, And the reason I really picked this book was because um, I wanted to give the kids an opportunity to read something that was kind of post-World War II, kind of modern, you know, almost kind of this modernist view that was, I think, short. Yeah, um, yeah. And fairly easy to read. I mean, it's... Merceau is com- complex, and it, it drives kids nuts to think that this guy, all he's got to do is apologize, and he's not going to go to jail or probably be executed, but he won't do it. So that's perplexing to them. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. physically, reading the book is not hard. Mm-hmm. So it's second semester. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> like We're not going to read, uh, you know, some long thing. I've done that before, too, like a 900-page novel, and that was brutal. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Um, well, all right, Rob, anything else that we need to cover today on episode 123, Farewell Tour? Man, look at you, 123, Jake. Yeah, once you get into it, I mean, you're already on episode six. Yeah, yeah, we're, uh, I'm not sure we're going to make, well, we'll see if we make 123. I mean, it would be nice. Um, I have are, more, are you going to get some, time. some guests on, you think? I think so. We're trying to find the right one for the first guest. Do they have to be in law or can they be just anybody? 
Like, can you get some restaurant owners? Yeah, or? that's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure. We're, we're still trying to debate who that first person. I mean, we, we have lots of lawyers that, that we could choose from. But yeah. we, we got to hit. I want to hit a home run with that first guest. Right. And um, I don't know. We've been talking about who that might be. Um, we also want to be able to kind of expand our, our listenership. And so if we can bring a guest on that has an avenue to a whole different group of people, that might help too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, a lot of people want to be on it. What you find, I, you probably find this, is a lot of people want to do this. Yeah. They want to be heard. <laughs> they want to share. They, <laughs> they want to share their, uh, they want to share themselves. Of course. Right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's been a, uh, it's been a, been a long journey and, uh, you know, Gilman's been good and, um, you know, one of the, best things about Gilman is I can sit with you and Cesare and talk about the stranger and classes and, and that you have the opportunity to do this, right? Oh yeah, Gilman, Gilman is encouraging, encouraging of you to do something like this. Yeah. That's why it's an amazing place. I think is that you could start a project kind of on your own. And if you're a student, you could start your own club and, you know, we had Luke Wordworth on here and he started the sailing club and now he's, you know, he's going off to college and, It's, it's growing a little bit. We, we talked about Paragon at Assembly a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, it's just the best part is that yeah. you're, you have some independence here to, to do what you want and you get a green light. Yeah, yeah. It's, hopefully. It, it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a great place, and I'm going to miss it. Um, I'm not going far. I will always stay, stay in tune, and I'm always here if they need me for anything. But, uh, you know, it, it's like being – it's kind of like being a parent, right? At some point you got to – you got to move on and let and let folks do what they need to do and not get in the way, right? Right. right. I, I think you, you know, people become um, you become <laughs> you become less tolerant. You become less open-minded, and when it's that when it gets to that point, I think you do more harm to an institution by staying than you do, mm-hmm. you know, leaving, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and letting people who have been empowered now to go off and do their thing, right? Yeah. You become a little you don't see every everything that you need to see after you've been doing it for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't have to answer this, but do you, do you have any idea of what, what's next for you? Yep. Do you want to be around or do you want to teach still? So I am going to go into, um, into the world of kind of consulting and, um, placement. Um, you know, I think in my 30 years of teaching 20 years at Gilman and nine years as assistant, uh, as head of upper school, um, you know, I, I think there are a lot of opportunities to share some of the things that, that we've done here at Gilman with other places. Um, you know, what's, what you find interesting is that when you talk to different schools, um, they always want to know what Gilman's doing. How's Gilman do it, right? And when you're here, you're like, oh, we don't do this the right way, or we could do this so much better. And what you realize is that, well, other schools aren't doing it that way either, and nor are they at the point where we are. Right. So, I mean, it's a testament to all the incredible people here and, and the ability to do these things like like having a podcast. Right. Like mm-hmm. when I tell people that we've got that you're doing a podcast, you have about 100 and some episodes. Who do they talk to? Well, we're talking to alums. We're talking to teachers. We're talking to kids. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you can do it. Right. Right. You know. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of schools are, are in need of of, uh, of an outside voice to kind of tell them, A, they're doing it the right way, B, they're doing it incorrectly, um, at least in my view, or C, you're doing it, you've got the ability to do it, but you need to make a few changes here, or have you thought about this? Right, right. right. Uh, I was talking today with this group I'm gonna work for, and they had just done a, a visit to a school in Palo Alto, California, and you know they were talking about how this this person is not, empowered this person and they don't have a vision for this that i'm like and geez we've done that yeah 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 if you're talking athletics it's like well you better know what your mission is and your upper school head better be talking to the athletic director who better be talking to the head of school or you got nothing going on right yeah that's got to be pretty um put that's got to put things in perspective a little bit to talk to some other schools and see, you know, Gilman for as much as people probably complain about certain things, or we always feel like we're behind the eight ball. 
we're actually pretty ahead of the curve here, and we've got a lot of great things happening that a lot of places don't have. Yeah, and it's because we have good people that care. And, and I think research, educate themselves, and first and foremost care about what's best for kids and people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that'll be interesting to, to kind of do that stuff. I'll still be involved in school, go to schools, watch kids. Um, but I think finally I'm going to maybe put that 30 years of experience to, yeah. to some use for other folks, which sure. is always good and rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Rob, thank you for coming Thanks, in today. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate and, uh, it. Cesare, thank you as always. Thank you, Cesare. And, and we're going to miss you. And yep. thanks very much for everything you've done for us. And Appreciate it. For Gilman. Yep. Thanks a lot. <laughs>